Sales is hard. Like you've got to be prepared to hear no a lot. One of the only ways to prepare to hear no is to be like really strong about why you're willing to do that. When you understand why you're hearing no, you'd rather get over the fear or go through the fear of hearing no than go through the fear of not getting the goal that you want to achieve. You're gonna be more willing to take that step if you're very clear about why you're doing it and also pulling those things close to you. One of the biggest things that I've found in sales coaching is the problem is how close the fear is to the phone versus how distant the win is of something down the line that you're excited about. My goal is to retire when I'm 50. Well, if you're 23 years old and you have to get on the phone in five minutes and you wanna be retired in 27 years, then that's too far away of a reward. And so how can you pull some smaller rewards forward that will keep you on track for that? Ryan Snow understands what it takes to succeed in sales. From his experience with Cutco Vector to his time tripling the revenue for a team at Keller Williams, Ryan has learned and mastered the fundamentals of motivation and achievement in sales. Hal Elrod chose Ryan to co-author The Miracle Morning for Salespeople, and Ryan has also created a companion workbook to help salespeople implement his key concepts. From mastering fundamentals, to understanding your why, to planning your calendar, to executing your plan, Ryan has coached legions of salespeople on how to excel, and his insights can help you grow your results in sales or any related business. I'm grateful to be able to share his insights with you here today. Enjoy learning from Ryan Snow. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. My guest today is Ryan Snow. Ryan's time with Cutco goes back to 2002. He had just graduated from Tufts University in Boston, and he started working with Cutco with Mara Fausto, who is now Mara Berghoff. That's uh, John Berghoff's wife, for those of you who know some Cutco history. Ryan quickly advanced with the company. He ran a branch. He was a district manager for a while before leaving the company to pursue other interests. Uh, He was actually a teacher for quite a bit and then began his entrepreneurial journey, got into real estate, ultimately became a team leader for Keller Williams, where he led explosive growth over a three-year period for his team. He wrote The Miracle Morning for Salespeople with Hal Elrod, and now he is the co-founder 
of Unconventional Acquisitions, which is a training program for people who want to learn how to purchase small businesses. Ryan has extensive experience coaching and teaching others in a variety of topics. He's got a lot of great value to add and share with the audience today. Ryan Snow, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me, brother. Anytime. All right. Excellent. Well, take us back to 2002 and tell us how you got started with Cutco. Yeah. So uh, 9-11 happened in 01, my senior year of college. And uh, I had planned on doing what everybody did that graduated the year before me and move into a consulting gig in Boston. Hadn't really considered sales as a path. Looked at a couple of different sales opportunities and just the general consensus of salespeople at the time was not really like highly sought after position for most. And I got a lot of pushback. And then ended up that my father found a business card at a diner in Danvers, Brothers Diner, for the, uh, I think it was like $16 base appointment or whatever at the time and brought it home. And I went in for the interview, saw Cutco, saw the product, felt like it was a really good product. I was impressed by it. And then met Mara, who's a super impressive person, and just really wanted to work with Mara and get to learn from Mara. And so I got home and my dad asked me what it was. And I told him it was selling knives in home, doing presentations. And he was like, well, you're not going to do that, are you? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was like, actually, I think I'm going to try it. Like, I haven't found anything else that I really like. And I enjoy going out, talking to people and, and the product's really good and it's guaranteed. And I think it's worth a shot. Nothing really to lose. And so that's what that's how we got started. That's great. And I know Mara pretty well and have known Mara, obviously, for a lot of years and she is definitely a very charismatic person and just a magnetic personality. Uh, so I could see why you, you know, as a college grad, would look at this person and say, hey, you know, this is somebody that I could learn from, that I could grow with and be able to get a good experience being around. Yeah, she was really good at teaching people how to connect with their team. That was probably, I would say, her superpower is the ability to build people up and make them feel good. And that's one thing that definitely has helped me moving forward in running other teams. So, Yeah, excellent. Well, tell us about some of the early experiences that stand out. Yeah, so I had a pretty fast start. I think I did like 7,000 or 7,500 in my first 10 days. I sold on my first few demos. And so that like early confidence was a big piece pretty driven. So I practiced every script, every objection handling. I scheduled out my phone time. Like I just did all of the pieces that Cutco taught. I learned the demo really quickly, memorized it. And then I just spent a lot of time talking to people and building rapport. That was the fun part. And I found the rest of it just became a lot easier. So over that summer, I think I sold like 20,000. I want to say I ended up like just short of FSM before I transitioned into uh, sales management. So I became an assistant manager in Mara's office for the rest of that year. And then I went branch up in Burlington, Vermont the following year. Mm -hmm. So pretty quick start, jumped into the management pretty quickly, having already graduated from college. And that was really the piece that I was hoping to learn is how to run a team. And so I had the opportunity to do that and and we crushed it as a branch. I'm not sure if it still exists, but as of a couple of years ago, I think we still held the record in Northern New England. We did 251K uh, that summer up in Burlington and awesome. uh, just had a lot of fun. We had I, I recruited like 130 sales reps or something that summer. And for people who don't know, Burlington, Vermont, it's not like a huge metropolis area. <laughs> it's like on the <laughs> half hour away from the border of Canada up in Vermont on the lake, but it was gorgeous. It was a fun place to live for a couple of years and uh, it was a good experience. So, Excellent. What were some of the most valuable lessons from your time as a manager? Finding leaders, I think, like looking for talent and building up that talent. 
it's great to be able to recruit big numbers, but to be able to build relationships with top people that can help build the team for you and with you and building that like team mentality around it, having some office-based goals, those were really important. I would say uh, back at that point, we were still running classified ads in newspapers, which I'm sure is not the major component right now of recruiting. Uh, we had just started online email recruiting, and we had this weird little like typewriter machine. I don't know if you can remember that, but that hooked up to an ethernet cable and like all of your online uh, people came in through that. And that was our best recruiting source. We were early adopters of that as a new branch. We had never not done it that way. So I think for our managers that had been around for a while, that was a little tricky and getting back to people really quickly on those online ones. That was a huge component of it. And so our time to action on that was super fast. I had a rock star that worked in my office as my assistant, my admin. So that was super helpful. It's just getting talent around us and building up that team. The key staff was huge. Choosing the right assistant with the right attitude who wanted to be part of it and build it and grow it and doing fun things with them and rewarding them for their efforts. Like Those are all pieces that I've taken into all the teams I've run at this point. Yeah. You were talking about the iApp machine. Yeah, the iApp machine. Yes, and our internet apps would come in through that. And you're right, we would have to be quick to make sure we were checking it. Do you remember, did you ever have an egg timer? Oh yeah, we had the egg timer. Yes, yes, (laughs) the egg timer so that we would be reminded, like flip the egg timer over, right? Every time you check, every time you get done checking and when it runs out again, check it again. Yep. And that way we were always on top of those and we were responding quickly because if somebody applied, typically they're available right now. Right. So if we were there to call them right then, then uh, we would be more likely to be able to get them in. So that is so funny. The iApp machine. (laughs) (laughs) I love the nostalgia that comes out. The way back button for 2003 or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Nice, nice. Any other key uh, stories or lessons from your Vector experience that you'd want to share? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things that I pulled out of of Vector and Cutco too is the time management component. I mean, it was a lot of work to run an office. There were a lot of moving parts. You're running trainings, you're running interviews, like you got to be out flyering and getting people out with you. And we didn't have a lot of like the online advertising type things. So managing that time and then learning to manage the time off. Like I had a short run at manager I would say a couple of the big lessons that I learned came from failure. So the time management piece came from failure. I burned myself out really quickly. I wanted to win, which is probably why we did so well in sales, but I was working like 70, 80 hours a week to do it. Uh, And there's only so many weeks in a row that you can do that. So that was a big component. And then also, I think another component to it for me was managing the finances better and realizing the seasonality of the business. And, uh, and that's something that I definitely didn't do well in my time as a manager, but have since put structures in place. I realized it's not a nat- natural talent for me. Uh, I'm a high D, high I on the disc. I am not a high S. I'm definitely not a high C. And so I was not super organized in my finances. There wasn't a ton that went into like, hey, let's map out what the next 12 months looks like and have a PL. and And so now I pay people to do that in all of my businesses because I've been able to recognize like, hey, this is not a strength, but it's super important. And now I can just review it and I don't have to dive into like the details of it, the things that bore me because the numbers excite me, but the organization of it doesn't. And so having that at my fingertips for planning and goal setting and things like that has become super important. We use it in every business that I run now. Yes. These are such great ideas that apply universally to any business anywhere. When I think about, for example, 
you know, learning to manage your time off and manage the workload. Every business, I think, has its seasons where we have to bust our butts. And I think anybody who's gotten ahead in life was probably willing to work hard to get there at times, right? right? But as you said, like to work 70 or 80 hours a week forever is not really a sustainable example to be able to follow. And uh, you've got to be able to get development. You've got to be able to learn delegation. These are all parts of running a great business that are super important. And then on top of all that, you've got to master your finances. You know, I was just talking, I released a podcast episode here with Phil Helmuth, the famous poker player. Yeah. And when I was asking him about keys to success, like one of the things that, that came up most for him was money management, right? He felt like you could be really great in whatever you do, but if you're not good at money management, you're always going to be struggling. And on the other hand, you could be just very good at what you do, but not necessarily great. But if you're great at money management, you're typically going to be moving ahead in your financial world and ad advancing your lifestyle. And uh, it's just such an important thing to master uh, at an early age to be able to. Yeah, be good. I, I think one thing, too, that I did learn and that I did well on the money management side is being willing to reinvest in your business, right? Like that was the one line that always came out, went back in the business for the next few months. It was more on the personal side of like, hey, I've got all this money in August, so let's go buy a new car, right? Poor decisions there when you're 23 years old. But yeah, on the financial end, and I, and I see this in the businesses we run now too, like your willingness to reinvest. I, I really think that your own business is your best investment. It's the safest investment. You have the most control over it. It's the biggest upside because you're looking for an ROI that's two, three, four, five X what you're putting into it, whether that's a hire, whether that's advertising, whether that's holding promotions that are are boosting sales within the team, whatever they are, just looking at those, planning for them, and then measuring the returns on them and continuing to pour into the ones that are getting you a good return. Excellent. I hope every vector manager listening can think about what are the ways they could be reinvesting into their business and be thinking about right exactly what you just said. What are the areas that get great return on investment? How can I pour more into those areas to be able to continue to build? And then that aggressive mentality, I think, is super important to be able to have ongoing growth. Good stuff. Tell us a little bit about your path after Vector, Ryan. Yeah, so uh, after branch summer, I did go district for a little while through that winter. Uh, we had like, I want to say 50 or 60 people scheduled for our, our December break session. And then we got a 25-inch snowstorm the night before training, uh, which completely just crushed our show ratio scrambled to try and get it off the ground. And so you combine that epic fail with uh, poor money management going into the summer. And I decided to go a different path. I actually stayed in Vermont for a little while. I took advantage of the fact that I was up there. I sold timeshare for a little while and was a ski bum for a year uh, and then decided it was time to get back to work. And so I had always wanted to be a teacher. I knew that was something I wanted to do. So I moved back to Massachusetts where I grew up outside of Boston. I started working with Department of Youth Services and I really fell in love with working with kids that didn't have all of the, the benefits of growing up in the family that I did. Uh, and so I stuck with that group and uh, I worked with DYS for about a year. During that time, a big part of our population was served by uh, a couple of different schools, consortium programs that pulled from different communities all over that just couldn't give the level of support they needed for these kids. So I worked as a teacher in a behavioral alternative school for middle and high school students. And uh, I started out teaching English 
And then I got more into like the marketing side. I wanted to give them something hands-on to do. And so my background in college, one of the ways I helped pay for things in college was I used to design websites for companies, small businesses, when we were still typing out HTML in a notepad doc. And so I started teaching web and graphic design. I'd always loved music. I had always been into recording music. I built a recording studio for a local recording company when I was in my junior or senior year that summer. And, uh, and so I taught them audio production, video production, web and graphic design. And that, that turned into a full-time program that I, I ran for about six or seven years there. Excellent. It sounds like you had a lot of very interesting experiences along that way. And then you ultimately got into the real estate business. And I understand that you uh, were a team leader at Keller Williams and you tripled their biz- the business uh, for your team in a three-year period there. What were some of the success factors there? Yeah. So one thing is, I mean, teaching is super lucrative in the rewards personally uh, and helping other people to achieve their goals and helping people learn and, and gain a new skill. What it didn't bring with it was financial gains and I started having kids. And so I realized that it was time to go back to my, my sales background. My, my uh, teacher's aide got her real estate license the year before me and earned double what she was making as my paraprofessional her first year in real estate. And so I went in as a sales rep and I kept my teaching job. And in my seventh year of teaching, I made less than I did in my first year of real estate and then almost tripled my own real estate the following year and decided it was time to go full-time in real estate. I got hired into a uh, what was basically the same role as the district manager. So they call it a team leader at Keller Williams. And your job is recruiting, hiring, training the agents for the real estate office. And so Keller Williams is a pretty big brokerage. Um, Most of their offices have anywhere from 100, 200, 300 agents. Some of the bigger ones are up to almost a thousand agents in some of the bigger cities. And so for three years, I stepped into an office that only had about 80 or 90 agents. They were what they would call like on the edge of failing, even though they were a pretty good office, they had some good agents, they had some good talent, but they hadn't had a really good recruiter. And so I was able to come in there and uh, really just build up the recruiting game, which was Mm -hmm. the important part, just started building relationships with agents in the area. I had sold on the North Shore, which was not near the Metro West area in the office that I ran. So I didn't know any of the people that I was recruiting. And so it took about a year to really gain some traction and just build relationships with those people so that they knew me and trusted me enough and just help them grow their business, even though they weren't with us and, uh, and use my teaching background and my sales background and combine that into my sales training background, basically. And once they knew that I cared enough about trying to help them grow their business, then they decided that they wanted to come work with us. So our first year growth was minimal. And then over the course of the second and third year, we went from being like $90,000 profitable to about $320,000 profitable over the course of the next couple of years. So, Excellent. I'd love to hear more about just what that path was like for you and how you leveraged some of your vector management skills along the way. Yeah, I mean, it really just came down to the rapport building piece and gaining trust with people. And and that it, uh, one of the things that I learned at Vector was that everything was a relationship game, right? The more trust and the more rapport that I built sitting with a mom at the table who was going to buy knives from me, uh, the more likelihood that she was going to purchase. So if I, if I skipped over that part, if I was rushing through, if I prejudged and didn't think they were going to buy. And so I skipped that part, you could pretty much guarantee that they weren't. And, uh, this was like an elongated version of that, right? I'm not asking somebody to spend 600 or 700 or 1500 bucks with me. I'm asking them to move their business 
where they make all of their livelihood, and they may have been with the same company for 10 or 15 or 20 years. So just putting the numbers in front of them and how I can benefit them mathematically is not enough. I mean, there were people that would stay at the same company, even though just by making the move, they would have made $100,000 more in one move, and they wouldn't make the move, right? They're, until that level of trust was there that we wanted to help them grow their business and they could feel that from the leadership, it just wasn't gonna happen. And so uh, referrals were a huge piece because the agents were out working with these agents all the time, right? So that whole personal referral, getting friends to bring friends in, uh, my agents were a huge component of driving my meeting numbers with agents outside of our company every time they co-broked. And so the first round of relationships that I needed to build were with the top agents that we already had, right? They had to trust me. They had to know I could help build, grow their business. And so I would sit with them for a half hour, an hour every week. And I just focused on helping them with their productivity and growing their business and, and diving into what their needs and wants were. A lot of them were just frustrated with time. They needed to add leverage to their business. And so I was able to help teach them how to do that and help them overcome sort of the fears behind making their first hires or even just adding vendors behind them that could make it so they could free up an extra 10 or 20 hours a week to spend with their family or to spend an extra five or 10 hours a week on their lead gen side that was lacking because they were too busy keeping up with the business they already had. And so just sitting down and focusing on what their goals were first and helping them to achieve some of those made them feel that reciprocity piece of wanting to help me. And they knew what my goals were. And we also had a profit share system at KW. So as I grew the office, Whoever was referring agents to me, they were making money back off of those agents as well. And so there was some upside for them in helping me. But the key really was gaining buy-in by helping them. And that's, again, that's something that I've taken from Vector. It's something that I've taken from uh, my time at KW. The teaching was very much the same in that aspect. And I, and I take it into our mastermind that we run now at UA. I mean, the more people that we can help, the less I have to do to drive new members to the mastermind. They're out there telling the stories about their wins. And so if we can talk about customers' wins, then when you get other people talking about their wins for you, then your job just becomes a whole lot easier. Yeah. I love the idea that you just invested it time and energy into the top performers that were there when you got there. You built relationships with them. You put a lot of effort into helping them grow their business that built more trust with them. Then people want other people to be part of the team. Other people who uh, you know are recruited see how you're handling uh, the current people. And it just begins to build this ability for you to recruit and build a huge organization. And that just sort of cycled upwards for you over the period of those few years. I've known a lot of people from Keller Williams, Ryan, whether it's through Exchange Group or from Hal Elrod's community or One Life community. There's so many KW people in a lot of these communities that I'm a part of. And they, they all talk about how they, they feel like there's such great similarities in the KW culture and the Cutco Vector culture. Did you see that? Yeah, there's so much overlap. So I, I, when I say that the job that I was doing at, I don't even know how old I was at this point. This was, I don't know, five or six years ago when I left there. So probably 2017, I was probably 37 compared to being 23 running the district office. The team leader job and the district manager job are almost the same role between like the recruiting components, the training components, the hiring of staff, getting the right staff, even at your front desk, right? Uh, that they call it the, the director of first impressions. 
So that is the first person you see. I mean, that's your assistant. That's your admin coming in the door. Uh, if you had a productivity coach, like th that person has a very like specific need to be able to get people built up and feeling confident, not just teaching scripts and things like that, but helping them overcome fears, finding out what their needs and wants are, helping them lay out a plan for how to do that. Like the coaching mentality was very much the same. We had something called ALC, which was the agent leadership team or associate leadership committee. And it was our key staff. Right. And so I don't know if you guys still call it key staff, but we did. And key staff for me were a huge component about why our office did so well that first branch summer. They helped pull in their friends. They helped build up other people in the team. They took people out on appointments with them. Well, the same expectations existed on our ALC. And they were, I, I gave more time to them, right? That whole 80-20 principle, you put it into the 20% 20, 20 of the people that are doing 80% of the business is where 80% of my time needed to go. And that drove everything. It drove their productivity. I helped develop them into leaders. One of the things that KW teaches is a team model. So a lot of times you get these great agents that have amazing businesses, but that doesn't transfer into being a great leader. It doesn't transfer into being a great manager. So I would teach leadership to these top agents and help them grow teams so that we could free up their time so that they could then do the things that they wanted to do while still growing their business. And in return for that, they would help train newer agents as they came in so that that didn't eat up all my time. So I could focus on top producers because those top producers were then focusing on on building up lower producers. And sometimes that opened up one of them moving onto one of their teams as a buyer agent on their team. So we were able to have this like, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. And it wasn't like a tit for tat trade off. It was no like, hey, you have to do this. You have to give me two appointments in order to get this. It was like, hey, I'm going to help you. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to help you get to your goal. And here's my goals. And if you guys can do anything to help me, that would be amazing. And there's a payoff for it. If you do it, great. If not, whatever. But most people did. And when you focused on those top people, they were typically the ones that were going to give the best referral, set the best appointments for me, help the most people in the in the group. So just dedicating your time to your top people, I think, was a huge component. But so many of them, so many of the things that we did at KW followed so much of the model of running an office with with Cutco. That's so cool. And and I know that like one of the hallmarks in Cutco is, is establishing a culture of personal growth where mm -hmm. it's not all not just about selling knives, but we work with our reps and our managers about all sorts of topics outside the vector business that help make them better as people. Did that permeate into your organization as well? Yeah, I mean, 100%. If you even look at some of the books that now come out of KW, like The One Thing, right? That's not a real estate book. That's about time management, figuring out what's important to you. And so, yeah, there were always like outside either speakers or trainers or even things that they brought into like the big events that we had that weren't real estate based. They were about growing as a person. There's a, a huge component about giving back there. And so, uh, yeah, so much of that. And, and I would say I credit Cutco with introducing me to personal development. It wasn't something that was ever really talked about before my time there. And obviously, like I'm a huge personal development guy now. I spend a lot of time teaching and training. I won't even run a sales training without talking about what people do in their personal lives and whether or not they've figured out why they're even doing what they're doing in the first place, because they're not going to follow through if, if it isn't tied in. Yeah. Excellent. I, I definitely want to dive more into some of your coaching concepts, Ryan. Somewhere along the lines in here, you connected with Hal Elrod and you co-wrote with him the Miracle Morning for Salespeople. How did that come about? 
Yeah. So I reconnected with Hal. Obviously, we both know John Vroman, and I was in charge of fundraising for the Front Row Foundation. Uh, and I ran their Atlantic City Marathon fundraiser that they had. And Hal ran the Ultra one year. We had a bunch of teams that were fundraising, and Hal was part of one of them. And we reconnected while we were out on that trip in Atlantic City. He was at the time running a group coaching program. So I became part of that. And uh, he was teaching the Miracle Morning at that point. I don't even know if it was called the Miracle Morning at that point. There was no book. It was just something he was using within the group. And he had been using himself for a while at that point. And so over the course of that, he did write the book and I was on the launch team for the initial Miracle Morning book. So I was teaching the practices of Miracle Morning to my sales team that I had created at KW. It was just me and a couple other agents. And uh, my sales started to increase. I noticed that it was increasing the sales of the other people uh, on my team and a, a couple other people in my office that were sort of following along. We had a little book club for it. And so in one of our conversations on the launch team, because it went on beyond the launch, when you're launching a book, you're marketing it for a year or two or more afterwards. And so we continued on those launch calls about sharing those wins. And uh, I had said to Hal, hey, have you ever thought about uh, kind of branching out and doing specific ones for like salespeople or anything like that and sort of breaking out into a more niche where people could take the Miracle Morning practices, but then implement them in a way that would impact their business? And he said, no, I mean, we've talked about, we've thought thrown about the idea, but we haven't done anything yet. And I said, well, I'm using it with my salespeople and, and we're getting a, a really good response to it. But I think there's some areas that where we could niche down into how it impacts their business, which might get some people involved that wouldn't necessarily go into personal development. But when they look at it as a business book, would be more likely to start practicing it. And he was like, yeah, let's just write it together, which was not really my expectation. I was like, hey, Hal, here's an idea. And he's like, well, we're both in sales. Let's just write it. And, uh, and so we did. And it, it took a long time because I was not a writer. And uh, I had an English background, but I hadn't planned on writing the book. I'm, I'm really glad that we did just going through the process and getting to know Hal a lot better and meeting Honoré and going through that launch. And it just it opened up a lot of other doors as far as speaking and training in order to do that. And it continues to be a passive income source for me now, like six years later or seven years later since we launched the book, get my checks from, from Hal's company every month. So it was a good thing. I'm glad I did it for a lot of reasons. <laughs> that that is so cool. What was this the first of the uh, like uh, you know branch off books of Miracle Morning? Yeah. So Hal talks about it in the Miracle Morning movie. Actually, that I was the one that gave him the idea for breaking out into the sessions, but the different books. But they launched the real estate book first. So they partnered with Michael Mayer on that one and a couple other guys. And Michael had already written a book called 7L that they pulled the characters from. And that was more of like a fictional story version of it specific to real estate agents. And then we went back to the nonfiction with the, the Miracle Morning for salespeople. So they launched before us. We started first and then they launched and we went out right after them. All right. But Hal credits you as giving the idea for this whole branch of many other Miracle Morning books that he's yeah, which is probably yeah. excessive in the amount of credit that he's given me. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he had thought about it before. wasn't really my plan, but look how many books he has now out there uh, on the topic. So, yeah, I, and Honoré Quarter is pretty brilliant herself at figuring out how to how to uh, do good things with books, and so I'm sure that she she's been a part, big part of helping him figure out. Yeah, and I mean Honoré is a rock star. I love Honoré. Honoré was my writing coach afterwards. I launched a book specifically for real estate agents after that as well explosive sales growth in real estate. 
And she was my writing coach for that book and helped me on the launch of that one as well. And then she also helped Hal and I, we put out the, uh, I don't know if you can see it, but this is a workbook. So anytime that I put out anything, even the online course, which we can talk about later with UA, I need something to like know that somebody's going to be able to implement because you can learn and learn and learn. But if you don't start putting the things into practice and and building it into your own business, then it doesn't, it's never really going to have an impact. And so shortly after we launched the Miracle Morning for Salespeople book, we put out the companion guide and it's a 120 page workbook for people to go through and actually think through and answer the questions about how in their own personal life, are they going to implement these things? What's it going to take? What are the fears that are going to get in their way? How are they going to overcome them when they come up and process? It helps them with the time management piece and figuring out which tasks they should be giving to other people. And then we actually walk through who are their target market? How do they get in front of them? some presenting skills and things that they need to think about. How are they building rapport with the people? How are they diving into what those needs and wants are and showing them that they can help with the needs and wants and not just pitching uh, the sales or service that they're offering? Excellent. Excellent. So good. I just love the idea of connecting implementation to learning because there's so many people that go through the process of learning and you know gaining information but they don't take that next step to actually implement you know what they're learning and it doesn't help unless you put it into action yeah i couldn't agree more i mean i think that's the biggest mistake that people make is personal development is great reading lots of books is great but if you don't figure out what's even if you just said what's the one idea i'm going to implement from this book and implement it at a high level like that's far better than reading 100 books in a year do that with three or four books in a year and implement three or four new strategies that are really high level going to have an impact for you. And the results that you can get from doing that are astounding. Very good. Brian, I'd love to hear some more coaching concepts that you like to share with people. You, you referenced <laughs> a couple of things here. What are some other uh, you know signature concepts that you enjoy teaching others? Yeah. I mean, I think the first one is just overcoming the mindset piece, which I, I think is why I fell in love with the Miracle Morning so much is sales is hard. Like you've got to be prepared to hear no a lot. Go for no is a great book by a friend of mine, Andrea Waltz, which if people haven't read go for no, that's a hundred percent on the the first to read list, but you've got to be prepared to hear no. And one of the only ways to prepare to hear no is to be like really strong about why you're willing to do that. Cause it's never going to be fun. Like no, doesn't get better to hear, but when you understand why you're hearing no and you've and it's worth it to you because the upside of getting the yeses it's a bigger fear to give up the thing you're going to get right so you'd rather get over the fear or go through the fear of hearing no than go through the fear of not getting the goal that you want to achieve are you willing to give up on all those life goals that you've set for yourself and income goals you've set for yourself or would you rather give up the fear of getting on the phone and talking to people? And that's a big component of it. And I think the other piece with hearing no is realizing that not everybody is your customer and that that's okay, right? That they're not saying no to you. Uh, that part of your objective is to figure out like who is and who's not your customer. And that's important even more so when you start talking about real estate where people really have to be able to afford hundreds of thousands of dollars and they may not be in a place to be able to do that versus like, hey, this person might be able to buy it by a veggie peeler. So let's not cut everything short, right? And five years from now, they might buy a homemaker from me because they bought a veggie peeler from me now and they really liked me. And so, but I do want to help people be okay with saying no. I don't want to push somebody into something that's not a good fit for them. So I'm just as willing to push somebody to no as I am to yes, 
And then when I see that they are a good fit, I want to help them overcome the objections because they still may have fears in their head about saying yes. And then I'm actually doing them a service by helping them get to a decision because people will procrastinate on making the decision. So I think finding that like distinction between where am I helping people that it's clearly not a good fit for get to know. And then finding the people that actually have like just legitimate concerns about saying yes and helping them overcome those legitimate concerns, that that's the objective in the sales side. And then on the business side, I think it's really about managing that why and your time and making sure to plug in your why time into your calendar before your work time. And so vacations, like if, if your main goal of running your business is to be able to spend more time with your family, then family time has to go into the calendar first. Right. If your main goal is to be able to travel, then travel time needs to go into the calendar first, because if you can't see that coming up in your calendar, then the day that you like are having a tough day on the phone, it's easy to give up. But if you're like, hey, I have to hit this appointment goal in order to be able to go on this trip that I want to go on in three weeks, that's like on the books, then in order to have the money, I need to do this, then you're going to be more likely to push through when those things get a little bit harder. And whether that's listening to a podcast that fires you up or making a call to somebody or having a coach or a mentor, whatever that is to kind of get you over that leap, you're going to be more willing to take that step if you're very clear about why you're doing it. And also pulling those things things close to you. One of the biggest things that I've found in sales coaching is the problem is how close the fear is to the phone versus how distant the win is of something down the line that you're excited about, right? So planning for retirement, people want, but it's so far away that the power of proximity to like saying no to getting on the phone right now versus the proximity of something that's happening like 20 my goal is to retire when I'm 50. Well, if you're 23 years old and you have to get on the phone in five minutes and you want to be retired in 27 years, then that's too far away of a reward. And so how can you pull some smaller rewards forward that will keep you on track for that? And uh, one of the things that helped me with that was measuring my net worth, because I could see that even if I were in debt and I was paying that debt down, my net worth number was increasing every single time I made a payment. And so it became a win to measure that net worth number that I could see a lot closer and then rewarding myself, even with small things like going to a restaurant that you really like, like a place that's going to cost you more than you would normally spend on dinner. Maybe it's a hundred bucks. It doesn't have to be a $5,000 family trip somewhere. It can be like, Hey, we're not going to go out to our favorite restaurant until I do this. I book X appointments or I get this many referrals or I hit this number in sales, but then we're going to celebrate by going to dinner and spending 200 bucks. And that's something that could happen at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month. And so it just really pulls like the excitement part forward because we're going to do one of two things like Tony Robbins talks about all the time, right? We're either going to avoid pain, right? Or we're going to pursue the, the happiness, the wins. And it's hard to overcome the avoid pain piece when the pursuit of the happiness, the excitement, whatever, uh, the pleasure piece is so far away. And so we really need to pull that closer because the pain is so close that we need to, to make them closer to have that race win. I love that insight, Ryan. That was really brilliant. The idea of just pulling rewards, pulling smaller rewards forward so they're closer to you. I've often likened achieving long-term goals to uh, the idea of going from point A to point Z, right? And like the, most people cannot see point Z, but if we can help people see point B, 
and C and D and help them take those steps, then they're on their way and they will ultimately get to, you know, their point Z down the road over the longer term. But you have to be able to see those steps along the way. You have to have small rewards along the way that are inspiring you to get there. And what I really love here is where you talked about understanding the why, right? When you understand the why, you're far more willing to go through the difficulties that there are to be able to get to your goals because you have this deep why that is much stronger. What you want becomes much stronger than the pain that it takes to get it. And so uh, you're much more likely to follow through and achieve your goals. The why time before work time, like that was really cool. All of that stuff, Ryan, was really, really awesome right there. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I love when people can start implementing that things, those things. That's one of the things that we talk about in the workbook is a lot of those components. I still use that with people, even, even when we run our UA mastermind calls, like that's where we start. Why do you want to buy a small business? Right? Because if they haven't really narrowed that part down and what it's going to take to get there, they're, they're not going to get through the process. There's too many steps. It's a six to 12 month process for most people. And so it's too easy to lose interest unless you keep that part in front of you. And, and the part that the Miracle Morning did for me was keeping that why was something that I read every single morning about those things that were important to me. Like that was almost part of my affirmations, part of my journaling is why was I going to get up and, and work hard that day? And then the second component, obviously, is the time management part of that. Like you actually have to do it, right? So it can't just be like the secret version where the last chapter is missing, where you have to take action. And so I think having the action plan afterwards is great. And where the action plan comes in is actually going the other way, pushing things out really far so that you can think really big without having to have the plan on how you're going to get there, because you've got to start out so far and so big to almost expand your capacity beyond what we think we can accomplish in a year, right? But then don't try and cram that really big goal into such a, a short period of time that you're kind of shooting yourself in your foot and you're not going to get it. And you're going to lose confidence because you didn't take this really big vision for five or 10 years out, plan that out, and then break it backwards, right? Where would we need to be in three years to be on track for the five or the 10 year? And then what do the one year goals have to be to be on track? And keep in mind that it's a hockey stick curve too, right? Like if I want to be somewhere in 10 years, it doesn't mean I have to divide by 10 and get there in year one, right? Because it's exponential. You start adding team members and vendors, or you put systems in place that increase it. You build a customer base that generates more referrals. And so all of those things start to click. And then over time, you can double or triple in a year. So it's not like divide by 10 and that's my one year. And that's a big mistake that I see people making with their one year goals is they start thinking like, I have to do a 10th of that this year. And then they go set out for this huge number and they're going from barely doing anything now to like, I'm going to do $200,000 in sales this year. And last year I did 30. It's like, well, that's probably not going to happen, but it doesn't mean you can't do 2 million in 10 years. That, that's not how it works. Yes. So how do you just start taking the next step, the next step and keeping yourself on track? So then taking the one year, giving you, yourself your 90 day targets and then figuring that out into your weekly calendar. And then on the calendar side, having a review session. So every Sunday night at eight o'clock, I have an alarm that goes off. It's my weekly review session. I review last week's calendar. I say, hey, what went well? What could I have done differently? Is there anything that didn't get done that needs to get moved forward into this week? And then I look at my upcoming appointments and my deliverables for the following week. And I say, hey, is there anything in my calendar that I need to put some time in for to be prepared for these so that I'm not scrambling like an hour before? And that came out of real estate coaching because 
if you've ever coached anybody in real estate, you realize like, hey, they're they're doing their valuation of a home like seven minutes before they're supposed to be running out the door to go meet with the client about listing the house. And so having that planning session is huge as far as the time management piece, because over time, time becomes a way bigger asset than money. Mm -hmm. And so people really need to, like we talked about money management in the beginning, and that's super important. Time management is far more important because as you start building some of those multipliers in, your highest and best use of time becomes the biggest impact and you end up having more money than time (laughs) at some point. And so learning those two skills, I think, are probably the most important things that have come out of my my sales background. And they and they both started with Vector. Yep. Excellent stuff. Really valuable. I like it. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now with uh, unconventional acquisitions. Yeah. So a few years back, I met up with Cody Sanchez, who's my business partner, and she comes from a private equity background. And we were on the same entrepreneur panel for uh, a community called One Life Community that helps to educate uh, inner city youth and and bring some of this personal uh, development to them. And so we went and spoke on this panel and we met, we got to talking a little bit, and we just sort of loosely stayed connected over the next few years through social And during COVID, uh, I started working on a live series called Elevate, which was just a a series of business owners and uh, 1099 people, salespeople talking about how could we raise the conversation to help people elevate their business in the midst of what was a really difficult time with the pandemic going on. And on one of those calls, I brought Cody in as a a guest, and she started talking about the opportunities in small business. And a couple of the opportunities came around the pandemic and what was happening and trying to help people not go into closures and things like that. But it also came down to baby boomers retiring over the next 10 years, and a huge percentage of them own small businesses. And a lot of them just walk away because they're not big enough to fall into like the private equity world where people are going to want to come in and scoop them up because they're so passively run. And if they don't have somebody to hand it off to, they may just look at it as like a job with a couple employees that they have. And her, she had an uncle that basically did that. And she started describing like the ability to go out and buy these businesses and what the cash on cash returns and return on investments looked like there. And I was really interested in what she was talking about. And I had been traveling around training people. Uh, We did a one-day workshop on the Miracle Morning for Salespeople where we used the workbook and took them through about 40% of the workbook during a one-day training. And then when COVID hit, obviously that kind of went away. And so I had been looking towards shifting to an online course model. And so we were talking about online courses. And she said, oh, you know, it'd be really cool is if we developed an online course for this business buying piece. And so we just sort of spitballed the idea off of that call. And over time, it just made sense. I realized that I had actually been doing small business acquisition and didn't even realize it. So when we were running brokerages, one of the things we would do is we would go out and talk to an owner of a small mom and pop brokerage shop that had been around for 20 or 30 years that was thinking about retirement. They had five or six agents on their team under them. And we would have them come on board and and fall under a bigger brokerage. And then we would pay them with the profits of what their team did over the next three to five years. So essentially what we would call a leverage buyout. And so I had an idea of how it worked, even though I would have never called it that. I wouldn't have called it an acquisition. It was just recruiting to me, but it wasn't drastically dissimilar, right? So this is one thing I find when I look back to all the things that I've done, whether it was Cutco or teaching or real estate or whatever, there's always this overlap that you can pull from the skills that you learn, regardless of where you go. And so look for those opportunities. What are those skills you can pull forward? But we decided to put the online course together and, uh, We had our biggest month ever, less than a year in, 
we are pacing for now a seven-figure business in probably the second 12 months that we've been open. So that's amazing. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. And so it's an online course and a group, group mastermind of people who are looking to learn about purchasing small businesses, what to target, how to do it, how to negotiate it, how to manage it once you have it. I suppose it's like an A to Z success plan for becoming a owner of a small business. Yeah, it is. So we've got basically three people in the targets that we we focus on. One are fairly high earner W-2 people that are like tired of trading their time for money that have probably gained a lot of skills in their job market already and could be business owners and then could own and have equity in so that they continually to be continually are paid on what they built uh, as opposed to just getting their salary every year. So we got a lot of people that are in the W2 space looking to transition. And when somebody's buying a small business, they're buying a stream of profits. So there's a way for them to actually get all of the money that they were making at their W2 job in their first year without having to go through the pain of startup and trying to go from zero to profitable and having a big enough runway to replace their income and pay their household bills. So that's one group. Uh, the second is small business owners who want to expand so we can help them take care advantage of economies of scope and scale just by adding another location or adding a new service or product line. And then the third is passive income investors. And they're looking at a little bit bigger businesses uh, somewhere in like the two to five million range for revenue that are doing 500 to a million or more in profit. And they already have somebody in there probably running the business. And so it's more of a passive, hey, I'll, I'll I'll check in with the CEO once a week or every other week, and they're going to continue to run the business. So those are the people we help. And yeah, we walk through all of those steps and we built the mastermind for the same reason I built the workbook and the, and the one day training is anybody can go through the course and just learn how to do it. And if, if you're a self-starter and implementer, you can go do it on your own. But it is a, a new thing to navigate that process over the course of the next six to 12 months in your first acquisition. And so we started the mastermind where we do live weekly calls with the group every week. They get to like interact with each other in a private Facebook group. It's about 110 people in that group right now. And that's been a lot of fun. I didn't, I didn't think that we wanted to do that initially because of the time component for both Cody and I. We put a lot of time and effort and energy into checking in with that group and answering their questions and being on those live calls. But uh, the payoff is huge for them and for us as far as feeling the wins and being able to help people get there. Uh, and it's it's an important part to make sure that if somebody's going to pay money to go through our course, I want to make sure that if they decide to implement that they've got the support and structure they need. So, Excellent. Sounds like a, a great formula. How can people take part in this if they want? Where do they find it? Yeah, so they can go to unconventionalacquisitions.com. Uh, they can go to our Facebook page at Unconventional Acquisitions. We're on Instagram. They can follow at Cody Sanchez. I think it's at Cody underscore Sanchez maybe on Twitter. Uh, she's got a big presence there. And then the website's a great place because there's a ton of blog posts on there that they can access for free. We're on YouTube. We've got a YouTube channel with a whole bunch of videos where they can learn about it for free as well. Uh, we do have a challenge too, if people are interested, but they're not sure. It's like 49 bucks. They go through a nine day challenge and they'll actually learn a ton about business buying. And it's a good way for somebody to just get their feet wet and decide like, is this something I would really want to do? Cool. Excellent. And Cody Sanchez is C-O-D-I-E for anybody who is interested in following her. Ryan, this has been great. You know, the theme of our podcast here is changing lives. And just want to wrap up by asking you as you look ahead into the future, uh, how do you aspire to change people's lives through what you're doing? Yeah, the biggest thing for me is helping people get their time back, right? And ownership allows people to do that. Because I mean, my family is everything to me. When I first got back into sales, it was to be able to 
earn enough income to be able to provide the the lifestyle that I wanted for my kids. That's why I left teaching. I loved teaching, but it wasn't going to create the lifestyle that I wanted for my kids. And I very quickly realized that one way to create that lifestyle was just to have enough income. But then if I wasn't around to share that time with them, then there was no value there. And for other people, it might be travel. For other people, it might be the ability to give back. So whatever that is. Uh, but for me, the biggest component has been how do you get freedom of time? And I know that business ownership is one of the fastest ways to do that, especially if you can jump into one that's already profitable and already has some leverage involved in it and you don't have to start from scratch. And so that's really what we coach business owners on is how do we get them freedom back to spend the time that they want doing what they want, as opposed to just spending their time working to amass things. Yep. Excellent. Great stuff, Ryan. I think that's an awesome aspiration for you to have. And it, uh, it's, it's a great service to a lot of people that you're doing. So kudos hundred thousand business owners, Dan, that's the goal. That's amazing. Excellent work, Ryan. This has been great. Thank you so much for bringing such high value to the podcast today. I appreciate uh, having had you here. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you, brother. Ryan Snow, everyone. Wow, I found that to be an incredibly valuable conversation with a lot of great insights. I was really struck by the similarities in all the different things that Ryan has done and how practical his uh, vector management experience has come into play in these many other things. Recruiting, being a building block of a successful operation, uh, building relationships of trust, with everyone in your organization. That's the foundation to be able to develop people. Then developing others both personally and professionally in your organization. Learning good financial management so that you can not only earn, but be profitable and develop lifestyle. And then of course, the time management piece where all of your work is uh, for the purpose of being able to build the kind of lifestyle you want and schedule that you want to be able to have in your life and putting a lot of your personal rewards into your schedule before work time is something that should be a goal for everybody to be able to get to in a certain amount of time. The weekly review session that Ryan has on Sundays where he's looking over his schedule for the week and making sure that everything is wired, thinking about what does he have to prepare for. That's something I do as well. I love the idea of not just learning, but implementing what you learn, having a system for implementation for anything that you are learning so that you are putting all of your good information into action. Understanding your whys, your reasons for what you do so that you're motivated to fight through the challenges and the obstacles. Such great stuff. Ryan also referenced the book, The One Thing, which came out of the Keller Williams organization with Gary Keller as a co-author, along with Jay Papasan. I did have a podcast episode with Jeff Woods, who is the vice president of The One Thing. He is Gary and Jay's business partner. It's an awesome episode. It's number 150 on the podcast. Check that one out if you haven't heard it already. It's definitely one of my favorite episodes super, super compelling. And Jeff's a great speaker and teacher. I would also encourage you under the uh, banner of implementing what you learned to think right now, what did you get out of this episode with Ryan Snow that you are going to implement right away? I would love to hear from you. Hit me up on social media. 
put a comment in at changinglivespodcast.com under Ryan Snow's episode. Just let me know. What did you get out of this episode with Ryan Snow that you are going to implement? Put that into action. Let's share those things with others. And let's make sure that we are all taking what we know and applying it so that we can change our own lives and lead by example to change other people's lives as well. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.